Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we begin the episode, I'd like to share something special with you that's only available for The Great Fail listeners. Visit our website, thegreatfail.com, and sign up for our newsletter to receive a free sample download of Greg Sattel's book, Cascades. Greg is this week's guest and subject matter expert on Blockbuster. In addition, we'll be giving away signed copies of his book to several randomly selected winners. It's an excellent read, and the lessons learned are invaluable. As always, we thank you for your support, and now on with the show. And I think that's the real lesson of the blockbuster story, that if you don't get stakeholders aligned behind the strategy, you're going to fail. Welcome to episode 16 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies? I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Blockbuster. In July of 2007, James W. Keyes, a.k.a. Jim, the new CEO of Blockbuster, presented a strategy to the board of directors. With the history of turning around companies, Jim was selected by renowned activist investor Carl Icahn to replace the previous CEO, John Antioco, who had been at the company's helm for the past 10 years and had driven revenues up to $6 billion at the company's height in 2004. But despite that once impressive growth, pressure from external factors like the emergence of DVDs and video on demand services and other more nimble competitors, Blockbuster was now at a crossroads. The room was quiet as a grave as the board listened intently to this new plan. But despite his history as a highly competent retail executive, the truth was that Jim was little more than a last-ditch attempt at surviving this next wave of market upheaval. A believer in crunching data, Jim had a vision, and that was to focus on cutting spending, cutting marketing, while also eradicating Blockbuster's online initiatives in order to focus on its retail brick-and-mortar stores. The goal was to turn Blockbuster into a one-stop entertainment shop, selling everything you need for watching a video in your home. The board understood that this was a drastic measure as it would reverse everything that Jim's predecessor, John Antioco, had worked tirelessly to build in the years prior. 
But that wasn't all. With regards to the pair of 800-pound gorillas in the room known as Netflix and Redbox, Jim elected not to pursue the obvious route of a partnership or an acquisition. As part of the finale, he instead announced that he would acquire Circuit City. Welcome to the story of Blockbuster, popped into a VCR in 1985, ejected and bankrupt in 2010. Before I began working on the story of Blockbuster, I wanted to gauge a general consensus on why people thought this retail giant failed to survive. Okay, so why do you think Blockbuster failed? I think Blockbuster failed because they lost their customer base to Netflix. I assume Blockbuster failed because it couldn't compete with disruptive technology like Netflix, Redbox, Hulu, Amazon, other online platforms that could deliver better product uh, that was more convenient and at a, a lower cost to its customers. I think Blockbuster failed because it was both the on-demand and the kind of digital revolution that Netflix brought about. Um, and I think they just weren't thinking ahead. And a lot of companies in the retail space have to think technology first. I think Blockbuster failed because they depended on brick-and-mortar stores and didn't embrace new delivery platforms. Blockbuster failed because it didn't innovate and adapt. I think Blockbuster failed because it was outdated. There just was no longer a need. We had Netflix that didn't come with late fees. Yes, it seems that the most prevailing and common theme continues to suggest that Blockbuster never saw it coming and that they never adapted to the changing times. In fact, when people talk about the importance of innovation at leadership conferences and at events, there's almost always a mention of Blockbuster and a reference to their inability to evolve. This reference typically comes like clockwork and usually goes a little something like this. You can either be a Netflix or choose to be a dinosaur like Blockbuster. Except what many people don't realize is that these anecdotes don't even come close to capturing the true story of Blockbuster. The reality is the fall of Blockbuster can't be chalked up to a bunch of executives with tunnel vision and a lack of imagination. Oh, if only it were that simple. There were a solid two decades where going to Blockbuster was an experience. It was a staple of the 90s and before there was Netflix and chill, there was a make a Blockbuster night. It was a time that sparked a lot of nostalgia for many, myself included. As I recall, many Friday nights spent with my sister picking out the latest movies that we'd spend the weekend enjoying. We'd watch it all, from rom-coms to thrillers, the newest action releases, and once in a while, something from the limited foreign film section when we felt like being cultured and artsy. But the movies were just part of the experience because none of those trips to Blockbuster would be complete without a tub of extra buttered popcorn, an oversized and overpriced bag of candy, or in our case, Twizzlers. 
For me, it was some of the most memorable times of my childhood, which is why I wanted to cover this particular company. But as I began to dig deeper, it became clear that the fall of Blockbuster was nothing short of extraordinary. The first Blockbuster store was located in Dallas, Texas, and founded in 1985 by David Cook, who came from a computer software service background. By sheer chance or fate, David's experience with managing huge databases proved vital in driving innovation within the video rental industry. Whereas other local video stores carried only hundreds of titles, he was able to offer consumers a selection of 8,000 VHS tapes. As the stores grew, so did the interests of investors who saw the potential in the burgeoning video rental space. This phenomenal growth continued to accelerate and caught the eye of a suitor that you may have heard of, multinational media conglomerate Viacom. But Viacom had bigger plans for Blockbuster, including taking them public, which led them to seek out a new CEO. It was at this point in 1997 that John Antioco entered the scene. Perhaps not coincidentally, this was also when things got really interesting. In 1997, there were already challenges facing the video industry. Critics and skeptics were already seeing weaknesses in traditional brick-and-mortar stores, and the shift in technology towards the digital frontier was putting pressure on Blockbuster's business model. But John had a successful history of transforming companies into highly profitable entities, including 7-Eleven and Circle K, which he helped take private before improving the business within three years and quadrupling the return on investor cash. Oh, and a little company called Taco Bell was another success story with his name on it. So being tasked with riding the ship at Blockbuster, John set out to do something innovative and brilliant. He learned from his father, who was a milkman in Brooklyn, that you need to always focus on giving customers what they want while still being disciplined in making money for your company. It was a principle that he applied to revising the blockbuster business model. Here's best-selling author Greg Sattel, who wrote the book Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. He has covered and written about Blockbuster extensively over the years. So John Andioko, he's an interesting guy. He grew up in modest circumstances in New Jersey. His father, I believe, was a milkman. So, you know, he was certainly not a guy who was born with a a silver spoon in his mouth. He went to work for 7-Eleven as a management trainee, and he moved up very, very quickly to when he was a senior vice president in the company at a very, very young age. And from there, he was asked to move over to Circle K, which was having big, big problems. And he was able to turn around the business in just two or three years. And after that, he was called in to do the same thing at Taco Bell. And again, within two or three years, he was able to turn around, which a business that was really struggling was thriving. And when he came to Blockbuster, he was the one who spearheaded 
that initiative to make those revenue sharing agreements with the studios. And he was just, you know, a really hard driving, very innovative guy. The traditional way that Blockbuster worked in the past was that movie studios would sell VHS cassettes to rental companies for a hefty price of 65 bucks a piece, which meant the video stores would have to rent the tape about 30 times to break even and then hit profits after. John, seeing an opportunity there, decided to do something groundbreaking. What made it so successful is they completely changed the economics of the industry. Traditionally, what drove the video rental industry is you would go out and you would buy a videotape, which were ridiculously expensive. I think they were 70, 80 bucks or something back then. And it would take from 30 to 40 rentals to earn your money back. And then after that, everything would be profit. And what Blockbuster did is they said, we can flip this model. Instead of paying this outrageous amount for videotapes, where the videotapes only cost 50 cents or something, let's make the studios our partners and revenue share with them. So instead of paying 70, 80, 90 bucks for a, a title, they were paying you know, a buck and a half, two bucks, and then giving the studio 40% of the share. That did two things. First of all, it completely changed the financial dynamics of the business. Instead of shelling out all that money up front in order to get a payoff later on, they could take that money and invest it in marketing. The other thing that it did was it gave the studios an interest in making sure that Blockbuster had all the hot releases. So now, instead of the upfront payment, Blockbuster would pay a dollar and give 40% of its rental revenues to the studios. The shift in business model proved to be lucrative and guaranteed more copies of hot titles and significantly lower upfront costs which enabled Blockbuster to advertise that they had the biggest new releases. Store sales grew, and so did its market share. In fact, the new changes were backed with a pair of new marketing campaigns, Go Home Happy and the Blockbuster Guarantee, which promised that your movie would always be in stock. And if it wasn't, you get to rent it for free when it becomes available. These were massive changes that drove revenues up in a big way. But like the villain in a slasher flick, there was something lurking just out of sight and ready to close in for the kill. Despite the success of the revenue sharing model, DVDs began to emerge onto the scene with big box retailers like Target and Walmart offering movies with titles below $20. This significantly hurt Blockbuster, who at one point had been more concerned about video on demand biting into its business. Of course, it was also the rise of DVDs that allowed newer, more nimble startups like Redbox and Netflix to come crawling out of the woodwork. Interestingly, and contrary to popular belief, Netflix didn't even have a substantial business model for Blockbuster to acquire back in 2000 when the two companies first crossed paths. There was a meeting in 2000 
where Netflix, which was in deep, deep financial trouble at the time, went to Blockbuster to strike a deal. And there are several versions of that meeting. Netflix says that they offered to sell to Blockbuster. Blockbuster says that there was no serious discussion. Netflix says that John Antioco was there for the whole meeting. Antioco says he wasn't there. He said, maybe I stopped in, but I wasn't there at the meeting. Everybody seems to have a different view about what happened at that meeting. There's a couple of things we know for sure. One is that Netflix wasn't worth anything at the time. It wasn't worth $50 million. It was hemorrhaging cash, and the only real assets it had were its senior management. And its senior management had started Netflix because they had just gotten an exit from their previous startup. So if Blockbuster had bought Netflix, almost assuredly, that senior management who were entrepreneurs at heart, they would have been gone from the company in two years. What Blockbuster's view of the whole situation was, why should we buy this company with no assets and no business model when we can just build the same thing ourselves, which is what they did. One of the things I think is important at that meeting that Netflix really developed its business model, that subscription business model, either around the time of that meeting or after that meeting. But that business model hadn't established itself as successful yet. And I think that's a really, really important point to understand. In 2004, sensing where the market was going, John saw yet another opportunity to do something revolutionary for the industry. He launched Blockbuster Online, and a few short months later, announced that he was going to get rid of late fees. Though it may not seem like much to people who grew up in the era of streaming, this was a huge deal at the time. Blockbuster once made a staggering $800 million in just a year alone, in late fees. During the time, Viacom did the math and calculated that it would take $200 million to launch the online business and another $200 million to cut late fees. Since that left a bad taste in their mouth, Viacom made a move that would prove to be a fatal one for Blockbuster, sealing its eventual fate. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The combination of the franchisees up to arms and the fact that the cost for these changes he was making was significant and the fact that they released a lot of shares to the public all at once when the company was spun out of Viacom. Plus the fact that Viacom dumped a lot of debt on the whole enterprise as well, that crashed the stock price. And that's what attracted Carl Icahn. Like Carl Icahn wasn't a longtime shareholder. He saw the low stock price and he pounced. Viacom sold its stake in Blockbuster onto the open markets and drove the share price significantly down, which baited in the renowned activist investor Carl Icahn. An activist investor, or corporate raider, depending on who you talk to, is someone who buys a large amount of shares in the company in the open market, large enough to take over a majority of its ownership, and then uses his or her influence to effect change within the company. For instance, cut costs, take it private, or fix issues that would make the company more valuable to its investors. Carl was known to be one of the more notorious and ruthless of the bunch. And he got control of the board, and then he started throwing his weight around. John, in an article written for the Harvard Business Review, talked about the difficulty in working with dissident directors that were put into the board mix. He wrote about the power of organizations, the importance of dealing with shareholders, stakeholders, and members of the entire ecosystem. But he was not well-equipped to handle an activist shareholder who had an agenda of his own. John seemingly began to feel the wrath of the contention amongst the directors and oftentimes found himself trying to defend his management team's strategies as other directors came in with their own ideas, suggestions that included putting greeting cards in the stores, carrying adult films, and even doing a book rental section, which makes you wonder if these guys ever heard of a library. But the opposition seemed to be slowly pushing John out the door. Around 2006, Blockbuster was making major headway with its online business with a program called Total Access. It was extremely successful because it allowed customers to rent a DVD online and receive a new movie for free when they returned it at a Blockbuster store. This led to even further strong sales. So strong, in fact, that they even surpassed Netflix. Total Access, that was a business model innovation on the part of Blockbuster. And it was, it was really effective because it made a weakness in Blockbuster's model, which was all of these brick-and-mortar stores, into an advantage that Netflix really couldn't match. And it allowed customers to use the store and the online platform almost interchangeably. So you could rent online and return at the store or rent at the store and return online. And customers loved it. Uh, When it was launched in November of 2006, 70% of the net new ads, new subscriber ads, went to Netflix. By the end of November, 2006, that had flipped, and 70% of net new subscriber ads went to 
Blockbuster and only 30 to Netflix. And then came the drama. Because despite having a great year, Carl decided he would withhold John's bonus, instead giving him a much smaller amount than agreed upon before. Carl Aiken called him up and said, I don't think you're working hard enough, so we're not going to pay your bonus. And John said, the way John put it to me, look, he said, I was just in a, in a position personally, professionally, financially, I didn't need this shit anymore. So he said, you find a new CEO, I'll, I'll stay until June. John had had enough. Because Carl Aiken said he was going to pay him his bonus that he owed him that was in the agreement. Because in his heart, he knew the company would eventually be doomed by the aggressive and often misguided tactics of Carl and his partners. While Total Access was launched, John would never see this project to completion. In 2008, successor Jim Keyes, who was handpicked by Carl, made a very public announcement that he would change the entire strategy, beginning with reinstating late fees, intensifying the focus on its door, and taking over Circuit City. It wasn't long before he drove the company into the ground, but the story of Blockbuster's demise wasn't a result of their inability to see what was going on around them, but rather the result of an activist who didn't support the vision of somebody who was trying to evolve. This is a key learning lesson for businesses big or small, Having alignment between the visionaries, executors, and the investors is all extremely crucial. And I do think that this is the fundamental misconception that most people have, is that if you come up with the right strategy and you execute it well, good things will happen and you'll win. And I think that's the real lesson of the blockbuster story, that you can have the right strategy, you can execute it well, if you don't get stakeholders aligned behind the strategy, you're going to fail. Instead, the board selected someone who doubled down on the retail Armageddon and restated the terrible late fees that customers had such a distaste for. It was a contrast in business approaches. John Antioco believed that delivering a service customers would love and removing what they didn't would in the long term lead to greater success. Carl and the board simply chose to focus on bringing in as much cash as possible, regardless of the consumer blowback. And what I found fascinating was everybody had the story wrong and took the wrong lessons from it. The truth was Blockbuster came up with a pretty effective strategy for meeting the disruptive threat emanating from Netflix. And they were even able to execute it well. What they weren't able to do is to align stakeholders behind the strategy. And ultimately, that's why the strategy failed. Not because it wasn't a valid strategy, not because they couldn't execute it, but they didn't get everybody behind it. And I think that's a really important lesson. Years later in reflection, Carl Icahn wrote a response to John Antioco's Harvard Business Review article. There, he called Blockbuster his worst investment in his 30-plus year career. He states, Blockbuster turned out to be the worst investment I ever made. It failed because of too much debt and changes in the industry. It had too many stores. Netflix created a better business model, 
and then Redbox kiosks and the whole digital phenomenon eliminated the need for consumers to go to a separate DVD store. I don't know, maybe the board did make a mistake in picking Jim Keyes as Antiaco's successor. Keyes knows retailing and did an excellent job with the stores, but he isn't a digital guy. I also think Antiaco did a good job in executing on Blockbuster's total access program, which allowed customers to rent unlimited movies online and in stores. Over time, it might have helped Blockbuster fend off Netflix. And finally, he ends his commentary, but not without the punch in the gut. To this day, I don't know what would have happened if we'd avoided the big blow-up over Antiaco's bonus and he continued growing Total Access. Things might have turned out differently. It's a response curiously lacking any real sense of remorse or accountability. One that casts the whole ordeal as a big misunderstanding. The way Carl tells it, Blockbuster slipped and fell because they weren't watching where they were going. And while the company may have fallen, it's pretty clear they were pushed. Special thanks to Greg Sattel for his contributions to this episode and discussing his research on the greatest video store chain, Blockbuster. And thank you for tuning in to this week's The Great Fail. Please make sure to visit our website at thegreatfail.com for behind-the-scene audio and video footage. If you like these episodes and want us to continue bringing you more, please subscribe to our newsletter because, well, not connecting with you would be our great fail. While you're at it, simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of them would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Lastly, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Great Fail Pod. And please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on iTunes to show your support. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And remember, folks, with great failure comes great liability. I must-